0: My aunt was always standing at the shop's front door, also waiting for us to arrive. I hugged her, and she always kissed me with the measured passion of a physicist. No more and no less. My aunt wore an embroidered dress, too, and a light kerchief that revealed a few strands of hair dyed a lusterless black with hints of red that flashed in the sunlight. She had a plump figure, large breasts, and an absent-minded smile that hung on her lips even in moments of sadness. My aunt lived in perpetual sadness. She complained constantly about life and her place in it and never stopped bemoaning the rotten luck that had been following her since the day she was born. My aunt attributed every tragedy to her luck. Some people are just lucky was her motto in life, a phrase she would slip between sentences as if to grease the words. My grandfather usually entered the house from a door connected to her shop I often saw him sitting in a big chair holding the Quran, repeating verses which, though he had memorized them by heart, he still read from the pages throughout the day. He always smiled cheerfully at me, and I do not know what I found so irksome about our relationship. I would kiss his large, drooping cheeks, and he would ask, How are you, Grandpa, calling me by his own name to show how dear I was to him? How's Mama? What's new? What brings you here this time? Don't you love us any more?" Do you like the sham better? This was my grandfather constantly admonishing me in jest and never pausing for me to answer. He did not want to hear what I might say. All he wanted was to chastise. My grandmother always shushed him, murmuring in her soft, delicate voice. Had I inherited her animosity? I did not love him the way I should have done. My grandmother did not love him. She complained about how stingy and controlling he was, but she never reproached him. She did not know how. All she knew was how to love. Scolding was the specialty of my grandfather and aunt. They did not chide me because they actually missed me or resented me. Their chastisement was born of a complex relationship between the countryside, where they lived, and the capital, Damascus, where we did. Between my father and his sunni Damascene wife, the woman who had stolen him and stolen me too. I was constantly reprimanded for a sin I had not committed coming from nothing, ignoring my roots, acting like I was better than them. I could never defend myself because this sin was undeniable, a given. Any interaction we had began
1: from this premise. So that was an excerpt from The Frightened Ones, a novel by the Syrian writer Dima Wanous, translated by Lissy Jaquette and read to you by Marcia link I'm Ursula Lindsay. This is episode 46 of the Bulak podcast, um, coming to you as usual uh, from a line between Rabat, Morocco, and Amman, Jordan. Although today, um, usually I'm recording in the studios of Sot in Amman, but today I'm recording from home because <laughs> the studio is closed, actually. Um, like so many things. Uh, yeah, so- I don't know to what extent. It- Morocco really is closed down
0: almost entirely. Jordan is now mostly closed as
1: well? Yeah, Jordan, um, the schools are closed, the public administration is closed, private companies have been asked to give people two weeks off paid leave, um, malls, cinemas, all of that, I mean, we're, we're recording today is uh, March 19th. Um, and, you know, things are moving very, very fast. Mm. I mean, uh, but yeah. So here they're doing a sort of like trying to basically force everyone to practice self isolation at home if they can. So only like essential supply chains and the medical sector are, are open at the moment.
0: Right. Um, Although you did not get the ambulance going through the street and had someone with a megaphone ordering people to stay in their homes, as we did.
1: No, we we haven't had that. I I have um, the national phone carrier or one of the private phone companies changed the name of the network from Orange to Be Safe. Like, oh wow! That's what shows up on my phone now, <laughs> um, and. Uh. And, um, uh, they, the, the ministry of health has sent out a few SMSs also kind of like telling everybody to please stay at home. Mm. Um, uh, but there's the, the, and then, you know, everyone's sort of also sharing that kind of hashtag on Twitter, like, please stay at home. Um, and obviously the, the more dramatic thing in a way is that Jordan closed all its borders and its airport, I think a few days ahead of Morocco, like when it did it, it still didn't seem such an obvious thing to do. Right. Um,
0: yeah, no, I caught one of the last flights back, back here to Morocco, fortunately from, from the UK. Where I had gone because my ticket for the London Book Fair, and my ticket and hotel were already non-refundable. So I went even though the London Book Fair was closed and did some interviews and meetings because at the time it seemed like (laughs) it it was a fine thing to do. By the end, um, I was glad that a a friend had alerted me that flights were being closed because I had to quickly buy another ticket and um, get on a different flight to come home.
1: Yeah, I mean, what seemed reasonable or not has changed, like, really fast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I was going to, yeah, so you were going to go to the London, the last time we spoke, we were both planning on traveling, you were going to go to the London Book Fair, and I was going to go to Palfest, the Palestine Festival of Literature, that was also canceled, there have been cases in the West Bank, um, and, uh, and there's cases in Egypt where a lot of the organizers of Palfest are based. And then, in fact, the novelist Ahadaf Sueyf, who is the founder of Palfest, was arrested yesterday mm. while, while, while part of a four-woman protest against um, the lack of precautions and measures being taken in Egypt against the spread of corona in prisons. Right, and
0: as we're currently speaking, she they have paid bail. The she charges were made that about uh, I think blocking traffic and, um, and and make uh, spreading fake news, um, and they have paid bail, which happened I think around four a.m. this morning. But they still have not been released as we're recording.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's also just so, and obviously there's a huge concern for anybody who cares about the well-being of the people in the prison system because, because they're very crowded, these prisons, they have very little in terms of health facilities available to the prisoners. Um, And you know, it's not clear what precautions are being taken. If um, if any, right. Uh, other than right.
0: not allowing
1: uh, prisoners to meet with
0: family members. Yeah, I mean, Ala, uh, Abdul Fattah, um Ahdaf's nephew has written movingly about staying healthy and pr- how, you know, the obsession with staying healthy in prison and how important that is, um, how central the act of attempting to stay healthy in an Egyptian prison is to the experience of being incarcerated. Mm. And how would you, you... Obviously, there's no way to self-isolate. I don't know what the soap situation is. Um. um and, yeah. and, and everyone is sort of immunocompromised in that situation.
1: Right. They were already doing things like not letting prisoners receive food or blankets from relatives and, right. you know, just just absolutely punitive, uh, petty and punitive measures. I just, I, and I and I find it so admirable and so sad that there's literally four women in Egypt who are willing to still stand outside somewhere and hold a banner in protest, and three of them are from the same family. Right. Uh, the other one was the professor, Rabab al-Mahdi. Um, so we hope they'll be out very soon. Right.
0: I, I mean, I think to me, to me, the worry is, you know, the, the sort of in terms of global attention or being able to mobilize pressure, all, you know, global attention at the moment is on the uh, the pandemic and the virus.
1: Yeah, I think.
0: But in any case, it, it seems like they'll be released shortly, we hope.
1: Yeah, I hope. So. I mean, I think this—that question of, what are we going to be able to pay attention to in the coming mm. months, right—is a really big question, right? Like, I mean, what's your first of all this question of like how to even concentrate, how to even think right now because we're all yes. just kind of glued to our devices and like. Panicking and trying to process information and trying to like make decisions and and um but then you know as 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 the, it starts as the realization starts to dawn that this is going to be you know a, a reality for a long time it's you you know I immediately start to get worried about the kinds of things that are going the kinds of decisions the kinds of things that are going to be done and what are ability to notice them or resist them is going to be under these circumstances
0: right under circumstances of extreme i think a base level of raised anxiety that probably will be with us for some time i mean i can only hope that by the time this podcast is posted we anxiety is not the um the normal status quo but I, uh, i'm afraid it seems like it will be for some time um yeah, it's it's funny because I do see on uh, social media, oh, what are you doing to <laughs> for your kids in this homeschooling moment? Here are all these free museums and such? And yeah, I, I feel um, that I'm just sort of clinging on by my fingernails trying to do my basic uh, work um, and under increasingly difficult <laughs> circumstances. And i'm I'm sure that must be the case for many people.
1: Yeah, I think there's already been (laughs) complaints about (laughs) all these quote-unquote helpful tips for like the amazing things to do with your kids Um, where, you know, people are like, shut up. They're just going to watch Frozen 2 three times today. (laughs) Um, I I mean, it's just so... We're just in such an unknown situation. I I just... it's, it's, it's really just so mind boggling. And then, I mean, I found myself kind of selfishly like thinking like, oh, this is going to be terrible for publishers, for book sales, for bookstores, for like the, the industry that I'm sort of in involved in, or that I thought, fo- you know what I mean? Like,
0: I don't feel uh, like, I don't feel selfish or guilty at all. I mean, I think in general, the freelance precariat is, um, is not in a good position. The whole book selling industry, yes, will be struck hard. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to progn- prognosticate. I think there's like a tendency to go between these two extremes of everything's fine Everybody's overreacting. There's nothing going on and, and you know, and a very intense panic. Um, and surely somewhere in between is reasonable. But um, I, I do – it does seem likely that already from things that have already happened, there'll be a large knock-on effect across the literary industry.
1: Yeah, and like you say, I mean, people who write, translate, like – Review, edit, all these things. Um, are, A lot of these are are freelance jobs, and you know, on the one hand, they're jobs that can be done from home. Right. On the other hand, they're jobs that may be the first to be cut as like not very essential, or you know, it's not. I, I assume that some precarious of my, right. industries. I
0: assume that some of my invoices simply won't be paid. That. Um, This was my experience during the last economic downturn that um, if a business is going to make easy cuts, (laughs) they will not pay their freelancers. Uh, So I I think that is a thing that one must expect will happen.
1: I don't think you should accept that, though.
0: (laughs) I'm not saying I'm going to accept it without a fight, but I, I do think it will happen with some people that I've already published things with?
1: Well, I think people should make every effort not to. I mean, it's not uh, like work you commissioned in the past. The fact that there's like going to be no money going forward, that's no excuse. Like that was already budgeted for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell them that. (laughs) Yeah. No, please do. Please do. Um, And then I also think I've been thinking about how like it's just really hard, I think, to to write right now, I mean, like, as a journalist, I'm a little bit confused, because also, like, it's a story that you basically almost can't report on. Like, I'm not supposed right. to go out. Right. Uh, and obviously, there are some reporters going to places, but... Uh, uh, you know, like I, I know someone who who flew to Italy to report on it, uh, but you know it feels irresponsible, and also like here I'm not sure if it would be allowed. Like I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think the authorities when they're when they're locking down a country that their number one priority is to like facilitate press access (laughs) um, to what's going on right now. In fact, they stopped printing physical newspapers in Jordan. Like the papers are still printing online, but they stopped the printing presses. Oh, okay. Uh, They were concerned that that was some possibly facilitated contagion. Um, And I just keep thinking about all the, the newspaper's because here you still have, you know, the guys who walk between cars at red lights selling newspapers. Right. And although I think the government is going to take measures to try and, um, uh, you know, provide some social support to people, like at those kind of informal jobs, you know, it's one thing to give like public sector employees their salary, even if they don't come in, but like the informal sector, I think, it's harder to target and they're likely to be the ones that suffer the most absolutely yeah absolutely i have uh, looking
0: out i and i've been inside for several days now um more or less and um you know the the people who are normally in our neighborhood selling tissues or um socks by the side of the road they're they're not there i don't know what what they're doing for for money right now
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like really hard to, I mean, uh, this seems like a huge economic blow in a country like the United States or like Europe. And then you think about these countries where already so many people are right at or below the poverty line and, you know, the governments are constantly sort of saying they don't have the money to... To cover their budgets, uh, like it's not clear how they're going to pay for the measures that they're taking right now, which 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 may very well be necessary, but um, it's worrisome.
0: Yeah, and I think this is a particularly apropos time to be talking about this book, The Frightened Ones, which it has such a strong thread of anxiety and all the different types of anxiety and how it lives in your body and how it moves from generation to generation um, throughout. The the novel is by Dima Wanous. And for those who don't know her, she is a relatively young writer. She was born in Damascus in 1982, the daughter of the very great playwright Saadala Wanous, who we've talked about on this podcast before. Um her father uh was diagnosed with cancer when she was about 9 or 10 he died when she was 14 much like um uh, the father of the of in, in the book um she studied french literature and her, she released her first uh, short story collection Tafasil details in in 2007 and then her first novel in 2008, but then it wasn't until about a decade later, in in 2017, that she published this book, The Frightened Ones, which was shortlisted for the 2018 International Prize for Arabic Fiction. She was also um, in maybe 2009 chosen as one of the great Arab writers under 40 by Hay Festival. So I think. There has, um, long been an expectation, um, probably ever since that first short story collection she published in 2007, that, that Dima was going to produce great things. Um, and so that was her second novel. Her third novel has just recently come out and the family devoured its men. Um, and, uh, and And the frightened is being published in English translation next month
1: yeah i was it's one of these books that um you you hear quite a bit about and you anticipate a fair amount and then it actually lives up to the you know to your expectations um, yeah
0: i I actually am quite surprised I haven't seen more. Chatter about I, obviously, I guess everything at this moment is overwhelmed by the news. But even before that, I was surprised not to see more anticipatory chatter about the English translation, which is out from Harville Secker, um, you know, a major publisher. Um, I think once people do get it in their hands, they will enjoy it. I, I, it's 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 odd because for a literary novel, I really kind of raced through. I mean, not. Um, i i really read it uh, was so excited to come back to it as if it were you know a thriller
1: yeah I think it's sh- what she pulls off is that it's um a quite sad and dark story but it's a pleasure to read
0: yes yes which is you know relatively unusual i, I um for a novel about panic and anxiety <laughs> um i, I didn't feel panicked and anxious when i read it i felt you know rather uh seen and heard and um and also that this this initial relationship between um her and Nassim, uh w- w- how they sort of meet in the in the um in the lobby of their shrink's office and the the weirdness the compelling oddity to their relationship is just so, I loved it so much.
1: Yeah. It's a memorable scene when she first um, sees and falls for this guy.
0: Right. Falls for him, you know, not because of any sort of romance or flowers. And when he first asks her out, they basically don't talk. I, well, I mean, they don't
1: talk at any of these dates really. Um, yeah. Ultimately for, I mean, for, for me, his character in a way remains a bit of a cipher, right um, yeah. but but there's a very striking I mean, she conveys how struck she is with him. do you have is there some sort of call um going on outside of your apartment right now? So no, unfortunately, um it seems that many
0: people in a uh, Rabat, at least, are using self quarantine as a time to do renovations. I know I heard on my son's online school f- group phone call. several of the students say it saying, um, "I'm so sorry, there's pounding going on in the background, uh, so our neighbors, like it seems like a many people are using this opportunity to do home repair.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, that's not very considerate of all the other people who have to stay at home. no (laughs) i mean we feel i feel bad i've been trying to keep my my young son from like making too much noise in the apartment because of the neighbors you know and we're like at home and he wants to like bounce things and stuff it hadn't occurred to me to just like start
0: Get out a drill.
1: Sorry. No, Do you, like well. major housework. Wow. Ah, okay. I could just hear like the faintest kind of, uh, I couldn't tell what it was. Sort of something plaintive actually in the background is what it sounds like <laughs> along through here. But I guess it's like a saw or something. No, I think it's the <laughs> a wind of a power drill. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Well, sorry to, sorry to take you out of that, but I, I, I I needed to know. I, (laughs) I I thought maybe it was one of the cars going around telling people to shelter in place. I think those are Um, nighttime
0: affairs, but yes, if anyone is uh, listening to this, considering doing home repair, do not,
1: please consider your neighbors. Um, so sorry, before I interrupted you were saying um, we were talking about her meeting. One yes, of the main characters him, in the story is this man. Just the the
0: the way in which they they meet in in the shrink's office, and she doesn't know if yes she she it's the it's the angles of his body that really attract her. Since there is not very much con- conversation in this first part, now, also her tolerance for his extreme anxieties which mirror her own i thought was was so wonderful and genuine and how in their first meeting they go to this terrible coffee shop and in sh- the the coffee she drinks how it sits in her stomach and how her anxiety starts to race how she continues to drink coffee even though she knows it's going to make her anxious Um, there were so many elements to the descriptions of panic and anxiety that I really related to and loved.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely the theme of the book. What's amazing is I think one, the voice, the voice of the narrator is very strong. So from the very first Mm -hmm. moment, she kind of takes you into the story and there's all these, and it's a voice. It has these asides. It it tells you things about her. It tells you kind of her secrets. Um, It tells you the things that she like is scared of and avoids and how she feels. And, um, and, uh, and then you get uh, sections like the one that you read from, which I really liked about her family. So about her relatives uh back in this village outside of Damascus and then like later on other branches and um that are just like so vividly observed and and perhaps quite autobiographical i mean certainly elements of the book like the 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 this very close relationship with this beloved father who is terminally ill seem like they're autobiographical yes i, I think th-
0: Obviously, you can read the book without knowing about her relationship with her real father, um, the playwright Saad El Ounous. But it, I felt such a tenderness um, in in the relationship between them um, that I, I had a nightmare reading the book of having a father dying of cancer. Um, not my real mm. father, but some invented father. But I felt, instead of feeling afraid, I felt loved <laughs> in this nightmare. It was very strange. But it, there's such a wonderful tenderness to their relationship throughout. And yet, um, I think there's nothing saccharine about her descriptions of family. Sometimes, you know, uh, you know, the grandfather that appears, the grandmother. I think they're so sharply observed in that it's not at all this kind of, oh, you know, my grandmother back in the village, how she always took care of me, how she loved me. And there are moments uh, where family take care of each other, but um, not not that many.
1: And then there's also, after having introduced you to all these characters, which, like you say, are flawed, are very human, you know, the aunt comes every month when her father has to go into the hospital to get his chemotherapy, her aunt comes, but her aunt is also kind of unbearable. So she's sort of taking care of her, but also very tiresome. And, but then later in the book also, there's these incredibly, um, sh- sh- she shares these stories about how her family turns on her and, and, and mm. and they turn on each other as the, as the civil war develops. Um, and maybe we could, Read one of those passages.
0: Yeah, if you um, don't if you don't mind, um so there's uh there's a scene. So there's the the novel is told in in two distinct sections, alternating between the narrator speaking and Nassim's manuscript, which is her uh her lover. And and this is from Nassim's manuscript. The revolution is like a divorce. Family members start saying things like, "'She was never right for you anyway. "'She came from nothing, had no morals. "'You're better off without her.' "'As if my mother became a divorcee, not a widow, "'when the revolution broke out. "'She came from nothing. "'She's Sunni. "'Thinking about this is enough to bring on a panic attack. "'Didn't I want to wipe this from my memory? "'Rid myself of it completely? "'A terrible thing, memory. "'I open it an inch, and all of this rushes out.' I hear the thunder of my heart beating, the crack of electricity regulating its pace. The rift punctured a hole in my memory. We didn't drift apart slowly. It happened suddenly, without warning. How does a human being become a monster? Does it happen instantly, or is it a slow transformation? Had these monsters lain dormant in their souls, sleeping when they slept and waking when they woke, eating and dressing and smoking, and all the while... Being nourished, growing, waiting for just the right moment to emerge, the revolution erupted in an instant. And in that instant, monsters appeared. They filled our city, our homes, our living rooms. They hit and slapped and insulted and killed and destroyed a whole history of human relationships.
1: Yeah. And this comes on the tales of... Her, some of her some of the her relatives her younger relatives just writing her basically hate mail right like like unprovoked uh, unsolicited i mean i suppose they feel it's i don't know if it's provoked by her being supportive of the revolution in any way she doesn't even talk about that they just they just start sending her letters full of like disgusting insults
0: well suddenly um her identity as different from them uh, appears where her whole childhood it didn't didn't matter if they were of a slightly different sect you know and then suddenly after um after the revolution othering happens in a new way yeah? and they suddenly see her the monsters come out they see her
1: as different they hate her i also thought that there's this there's these descriptions of kind of um these kinds of distinctions of the way sectarianism works in Syria that are so like subtle and interesting. And they're not kind of like explanations for outsiders. They're just part of the texture of the story. But I'm thinking about at one point she talks about how her relatives have two different son-in-laws mm, and yes, how yes. differently they – wonderful. It's funny how differently they treat the one who is one of them. And so they don't, um, they don't make a big production of it. They like greet him in their pajamas. They like send him out to buy stuff. You know, they hang around and the one who is quote unquote not like not one of them, like comes from a different sect, a different background. They like dress for the n- up to the nines for every time he comes over and like right. everything to the, at the dining China. table. <laughs> and and yeah. and and are so formal. And, and that's a really interesting example. And it's not maybe the example you'd expect. Like um like it's a nuance to how you treat people that you think of as one of you and one of not. And in fact you're sort of doing more for the outsider. To right. impress him, than than for the other guy, and it's just part. It's just part of the texture of the story. Like she's not, she doesn't then try to make some big points out of it, uh, or or lesson or anything. Um, it's just there as a kind of one of these really vivid details that that make up the plot.
0: Right, and yeah, I think one of the wonderful things about this book versus some some books that were written uh, you know in in the early years right after 2011 is that there is not yeah i don't think she's trying to give a message uh, about anything and if there is any kind of theme it's that things change fast people change fast a thing that you didn't expect can come out of nowhere and you know that panic is a terrible terrible thing
1: right and it feels very i mean so clearly there is this the fear that they talk about sometimes is a fear that is political, that's social, that's something that's part of the construction of, of the regime, right? Like this Mm. fear of being surveilled, um, the fear that's like installed all the way back in school by like making some kids be in charge of basically spying on other kids. Like, Mm. um, but then it's also like a very, like she doesn't it's not just an allegory like the character then describes her own particular set of you know anxieties uh in a in a in a, in a very like vivid and personal and individual way um so it's not just like uh, this this fear isn't just a like a, a metaphor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is one person's story. And I think that's why one, one of many reasons why I related to it so intensely. Um, I didn't see it as the Syrian story. Um, I saw it as this particular character's story.
1: Right. It's just a Syrian story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this very moving, there's a lot of these little parenthetical asides and in as the narrator speaks. Um and and some of them, even when, you know, it's not my personal experience to have this kind of uh feelings or concerns, but they just strike me as so true. Like mm. with the truth of how a, one particular person might feel, I think she has a line in there at one point where she says something like, "Like for years, I'd been convinced that I hated myself, but eventually, I realized I missed myself. Yeah. I missed to be the person I am. It was so. T- I mean, it's like almost po- it's like poetry. I was very to I'm underlining that, and that's not a feeling I've had. It's just a feeling that strikes me as so." true so true somebody. yes
0: yes absolutely
1: yeah no i i have
0: at least two dozen dog-eared pages where um uh, and i'm i apologize to the people who um are very anti dog-earing but i do it and oh, um, i don't apologize well, <laughs> no
1: apologies no regrets <laughs> yes I, I love my books very deeply
0: and they find show a it page. <laughs> um but I think you can always tell a book where I loved the language of it and the in, you know individual pieces of the description by looking and seeing that I dog eared so many pages because it's this moment of yes yes I I I mark it down because I want to come back to that particular phrasing the way that that moment was staged
1: later and and we should I, I think the translation's really good. Um, yes, it, I, I, uh, I agree. I have both. I only sort of, you know,
0: I, I didn't like check them against each other. I'm just not that kind of a, a person, but uh, I, th- I think the tr- Lissy's translation is lovely.
1: Well, I almost always only end up going back and checking texts against each other when I'm dissatisfied with the translation. Like something mm-hmm, in the translation mm-hmm. pushes me back to the original text. And this reads so well that I never felt any need to, like, it never made me think, hmm, like. Right. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe
0: you're right. It's when I feel like something's missing. I feel, I feel cheated. Then I
1: go back and I say, what, what was I cheated of? And this reads so naturally. And in particular, there's, I remember, I mean, there's a lot of, sections that I think you don't even, you just don't notice the work that goes into a good translation. Of course, that's kind of the essence of it, but there's even like sections that deal specifically with the nuances of Syrian dialect and how, again, when she's also making these very subtle and interesting differentiations and that are beautifully rendered. Like, I don't know how she she came up with the equivalents to kind of describe all these, you know, different expressions that the grandmother, the aunt would use and like, and, and it's, it's, it's really cleverly done.
0: Right. Without feeling forced. I know I have read, um, Arabic books translated to English where they're dealing with different internal dialects, like where the, the novel marks somebody is coming from a village or somebody is speaking Jewish Arabic or something, something like that. Um, where when it's rendered in the English, you just feel like either you're being given a lecture on it or, you know, or it feels so forced and corny. Um, wh- whereas this just felt very naturally part of the novel.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will my one, I would say, I mean, I think it's a. I think it's a great book. I really I really enjoyed it. I really recommend it. Um the, the one thing that for me was not particularly a strength of the story is this plot construction of um, the narrator and then a novel about a woman that it seems to almost be her so that you have these kind of two paler stories about young Syrian women which share a certain number of biographical details and the one becoming kind of obsessed with the other. For me, this kind of construction, I don't know. One, I couldn't keep them straight. Like, I couldn't tell apart the two characters. Like, their details got mixed up for me because they were too close. Um, and and I didn't really see the point, really, of this kind of... Uh, okay, so of, here uh, we're going to disagree. Uh, and I'm always scary. right. Yeah, yeah. I'm
0: sorry. I'm always very excited to disagree with you. (laughs) Um, I can tell you're like jumping in. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I mean, there's so many times when, like, remember the countdown that we did like, Oh, we both have the same number three. Oh, we both have the same number two. You know, it was, I know uh, it was, it it was, it
1: was really embarrassing.
0: (laughs) It's relatively rare (laughs) that we get to argue about something. So I, I, I liked that the the, the details got confused. Um, um, I, I like this kind of construction. I feel that there is something... Why? Es- okay. So there's something essentially interesting to me about the way in which we are both ourselves and a story about ourselves. Um, I am Marsha, but I'm also the narrative I tell myself about being Marsha. And those two things are distinct and confusing, um, I like these construct, and I particularly thought it was interesting in the context of um, fear and family stories where you don't know what's true, where you can't really necessarily trust what you're being told, where there are um, multiple, where there's an official and an unofficial narrative. Uh, there's, all, there's this novel by Radwa Ashur. Uh, specters, where there are also alternating chapters. These characters are more distinct. There's Shagar, who is, um, a university professor who te- teaches in something else, the humanities, that's not literature. And then there's R- Radwa, who is Radwa, but she's also not Radwa because of course she's writing a novel. She's, she's turned herself into a character. Um, and, um, Amjad Nasser also does this, uh i i just i really <laughs> as they collapsed the two visions i enjoyed that experience
1: i mean i don't know i guess like obviously every time a writer writes a story that is in any way autobiographical you have this 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 meta uh sort of theme of of the, the real writer versus the character. Mm. Like, I don't see that as anything that's particular even to this book. Like um, what, what she's, I'm talking more about this. Um, I, I feel like there's all these portions in the book that are like really vivid and really sort of strong with a kind of flavor of a real world. Right. Mm. Like, yes the descriptions of the relatives the, the like all so many scenes in the story her own kind of like physical and emotional reactions uh but some of the framework the narrative framework that's been sort of set up to channel these stories i find a bit artificial like I just, I think it could have been done. It doesn't, I don't feel like, I don't quite understand why it was necessary to set it up this way. Like, and I don't really get it. Like, why does this Nassim guy who never really coalesces into a real person for me, he's more like a, you know. Yeah, he's very distant. Sort of male cipher. He gets to write her story um, basically, like, right, uh, or a story about a woman very close to her, like, and you never really, it never really makes sense where he gets this story from or what the story is. Like, I, the whole f- act of him writing it, I couldn't really tell what that was about. Really, um, I mean, it's fine, it works. <laughs> I'm just saying, it didn't. That was, if I had one if I had one sort of like, you know, with my, I don't know, uh, literary critic hat on, like that's one part of the work as a, as a work of literature that I would interrogate, you know, like the structure.
0: I think it's an interesting point to interrogate and it's true. It's, it's never explained. It never comes together. We don't know um, what is the point of him and how did he get these details about her that seem intimately to be about her life rather than in the beginning, it seems to be about a character. Um, it, you know, it, but to me, somehow the process of feeling that you're being written about rather than writing your own story, um, it it worked for me as a reader. I have not taken the time to interrogate about, uh, interrogate why it it emotionally worked for me, even if it doesn't um logically come together. Uh but I did feel a thrill from it.
1: I think as I was reading it, I almost felt like every time it interrupted into this other story, I was like, no, just let's just keep on going. I know it's all your story. Like it's there's there's one protagonist to this story, I feel like. And there's yeah. really one yeah. voice that's very yeah. strong. And, and some of the other stuff just felt superfluous. So I was like, okay, I'll take it. But what I'm really interested <laughs> in is this one core story where that all the real feeling and the real details come from. Right. right. Um, and some of this superstructure I could take or leave. Uh, but I mean, so, some of it, some of it kind of works. I don't know. I don't know. Um I really enjoyed uh, the superstruct
0: and- the 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 um the shrink's office, the conversations with the shrink, him writing down things about her, him having a narrative about her, other stories about her floating around in the world that she couldn't control. Maybe that's like one of my, I don't know, obsessions.
1: Yeah. I'll think about some more. Anyway, I mean it's it's really very strong and having um you know it, it, it's sort of moving having read and talked quite a bit about the work of her father to mm. then be curious partly because of that because of personally because of my familiarity with his work to have been curious about her um and then uh to to find such talent also uh in her work is is like you know really really kind of cool yeah Uh, what a delight yeah I feel I felt almost like proud on her father's behalf (laughs) I mean it's an extraordinary family history uh that they that they share that she continues to to write in fact Mm. um so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I really sort of unreservedly actually like rec recommend this, um, uh, and me as uh, well. And I think we're all, <laughs> and I don't know what else you're, I mean, I, I'm trying actually now to read more. Cause it seems like one has all the time to, uh, but, but there is this question oh. of, of focus.
0: <laughs> Uh, I um, I feel that I've got all the work I normally do. Plus, I am supposed to be managing this online schooling, remote schooling process. Uh, I feel I've got ten times the normal things going
1: on. Um, I mean, also, yeah, no, and also, you have you have three kids. Like that's. That's that's more. where I, I I do feel that too. But that I'm also like. But I'm never going out. Like I'm literally at home every night. Like I should. I did I when I was should, in London. Uh, I
0: did get that gigantic Hilary Mantel book, and I have been reading that about.
1: <gasps> I just got that on my Kindle because I realized I'm never gonna. You know who knows? Leave when the house again. I'll be visiting. I'll be well. There's that, or visit a bookstore that will actually carry it to have it. So I that is also. Um, one of the ones I'm I'm reading right now and really enjoying. I, lo- oh, I like her so y- yes. much.
0: Yes, me too. Me too. I'm um, delighted by it. Yeah, somebody said, one of the reviews said that they felt um, uh, that it went on too long or something, but th- thus I have not come a- To me, I'm so excited, like, <sighs> what happens next? Obviously, I, one could just check the history, but
1: I think a lot of us and maybe her too, because it seems like a book that she must have greatly enjoyed writing are going to be sad for it to end at all. And also it can't end well. So there's that too. Maybe that's why it's very long. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, you know, that much, (laughs) um, well, um, I think shall we shall we wrap it up here for today? Yes, yeah, yes. And I'm just going to remind everybody, as usual, uh, to share, rate uh, the episode if you like it, Um, and uh, to um, take care of yourself, uh, be safe. I guess also try and take care of each other. I think we're all trying to figure out how to be. Yes, as positive um, and as helpful as we can to others as well, um, and enjoy everything you're listening to and reading these days.
0: Uh, and I know some people wrote in saying that the app they're reading on it doesn't allow them to rate, and that's that's fine too. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> anyway, um, well, we'll 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 you know talk again soon and hopefully uh by the time our next episode rolls around there will be uh, a little bit more good news uh out there
0: that would be wonderful all right thank you ursula for taking the time to do this you're welcome thank you too okay (laughs) all
1: right Bye. bye bye